Hello and welcome to Episode 4 of the Business Divorce Roundtable. I'm Peter Mahler, business divorce lawyer and partner at Farrell Fritz in New York City. You're in for a real treat in this episode in which I interview attorney John Cunningham, a nationally recognized expert on limited liability companies and author of the leading LLC form book and practice manual published by Walters Kluwer called Drafting Limited Liability Company Operating Agreements. John is of counsel to the New Hampshire law firm of McLean Middleton. He chaired the committee that wrote the New Hampshire Revised Limited Liability Company Act. He lectures all over the place. He's a prolific author of articles on LLCs. What else? He blogs at CunninghamOnOperatingAgreements.com, and he's a delightful, witty, charming guy whom I've proudly known for a bunch of years. John recently published an article in the Wealth Council Quarterly called Avoiding Deadlocks in LLC Operating Agreements. I couldn't resist asking John onto this podcast to talk about it, since LLC member deadlock is a major, recurrent problem that often results in business divorce litigation. In our conversation, you'll hear John talk about the importance of potential deadlock in drafting LLC agreements, how generally to address potential deadlock in forming LLCs, and specific provisions used in the operating agreement to avoid fatal deadlock. I hope you enjoy the interview. John, welcome to the Business Divorce Roundtable. Thank you. It's good to be here. John, uh, you and I in our legal practices have very different, or you might even say opposite roles and perspectives on closely held business entities. I'm more like the, you know, the ER surgeon or the undertaker dealing with the, the critically ill or dead relationship between business partners. And, and I think of you like more like the obstetrician or the midwife help, <laughs> helping to, to, to give birth to a new member of the business world. Yet, yet we have a lot in common in terms of our focus on the you know, organic documents, the shareholder agreements or the operating agreements used to create these companies. Because, you know, as I see it, John, lousy agreements make excellent candidates for business divorces. And then when there is a business divorce litigation, the lessons that we learn from the, the litigation make for better agreements. What do you think about that? I couldn't agree more. I create uh, LLCs. You destroy them. That's it. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm, okay. I'm exaggerating. Yeah. I will say, however, that my wife is a labor and delivery nurse, and I'm a labor and delivery lawyer, so there's a certain family connection with okay. this whole thing. But but what you say basically is I agree, and I love it when you uh, – I, I happen to love your uh, blog posts mm-hmm. – but, but you very often talk about a case and then say, this is what I think this means for the drafting of operating agreements. And of course, that's what I zero in on because that's what I do for a living. Well, thank you. And, and I, although I resent your saying I destroy companies. <laughs> <laughs> Only kidding. All right. So, so John, um, the, our topic for this conversation is deadlock in LLCs. And that was inspired by a recent article you wrote for a group of estate planners who also handle LLC formations on how to draft LLC operating agreements to handle deadlocks among LLC members. And you also, I know, address this issue in much greater detail in that magnificent book of yours, Drafting Limited Liability Company Operating Agreements. What what do you see as the importance of this issue? Because there are so many issues that I assume have to be dealt with when you're addressing or putting together that operating agreement. How important is the deadlock issue? 
first of all, I think we should probably very briefly uh, define deadlock, and it really means an unbreakable disagreement among the members. But I think what we want to do is to focus on a particular kind of deadlock, namely a deadlock that arises again and again, the most common by far type of uh, deadlock. The deadlock arises in the case of two-member LLCs in which the members under their operating agreement, whether verbal or written, are equal. They share equally in uh, profits and losses, and they each have one vote on LLC uh, matters. Uh, that's how I would like to define uh, deadlock for our purposes, these uh, multi-member LLC with two equal members. Is that okay with you? It is. I mean, I know there are variations on that where you can actually have more than two members, but based on the allocation of voting or management rights, you can still have a deadlock. But I think it's the same idea. I, I think so. But but this is so very common. That's why I propose it. You could have six members uh, and five of them vote yay, but one of them votes nay and he has a veto and you had a deadlock. But let's focus on what I just um, mentioned. So I think it's a little bit useful to see this in a kind of quantitative um, context. And very briefly, you can extrapolate from IRS uh, S-corporation filing statistics, which are very um, rich and rather current, and you find out something a little surprising. At least 70, probably more like 75% of all LLCs are single-member LLCs. About 20% or more are two-member LLCs, and a paltry 5% are three-members. So we're talking about 30%, maybe probably more like 25 or 20% of all LLCs are two-member LLCs. And in my experience, somewhere near 50% and maybe more are two members who have equal rights, which is exactly what we're talking about. And if there are 10 million, maybe 15 million active LLCs out there, you're talking about you know, a couple million uh, LLCs, which which face a severe risk of deadlock. So, in other words, this is not a side issue that LLC lawyers run into from time to time. They run into it a great deal. That's why we want to talk about it as as usefully as we can. Well, those, so, those are really fascinating statistics, and I, I would not have guessed anything close to that percentage of single-member LLCs. If if I had been asked to guess, are there more two-member versus three or more member LLCs, I think I would have guessed the latter, but it's actually completely the opposite of that. And it makes a difference about how you think about your LLC formation practice, because it means you have to really zero in on two-member LLCs, and more specifically on two-member LLCs where the members are equal, and you've got to be prepared to the hilt, or, uh, or you're sort of um, thumbing your nose at the statistics. In my experience, and I don't know about yours, and, and again, you may have a more representative sampling of the world out there because I, I would think that you deal on a volume basis with more formations than I do with business divorces. But in my experience, a lot of these two-member LLCs start out, they're, even if they're not family-owned, you know, relatives, they're people who know each other well. They may be friends. They may be friends for 20, 30 years. When you have that situation as someone who assists in forming these entities, how do you even talk to these, to these two friends about provisions that sort of contemplate they're no longer going to be friends and they're no longer going to be business partners? Well, the first thing you have to do is tell them what you just said. Guys, 
Um, I'm sorry to tell you, if you don't already know this, some of them do, but some of them don't, that business is hard on friendships. And the, the biggest issue in two-member LLCs where the members are equal is precisely deadlock. And why is that such a big deal? Because sooner or later, it's almost certain that even the best of friends who form a two-member LLC are going to have serious disagreements about how to go forward with their LLCs, how to deal uh, with a, an important issue in their LLC. And so step number one is to be acutely aware of that. And some of your LLC formation clients will already be acutely aware, but again, a wild guess is statistics, 60 to 70% won't have considered it. It's not even at the subconscious level. So the first thing you say is, guys, you may not know it, but you've got this problem. And then the second thing you say is if you don't address this when you're forming your LLC and planning and drafting your operating agreement, then when the problem does arise, it could literally destroy your LLC. And this, at this point, if you're fairly experienced as an LLC formation lawyer, I've been doing it myself for uh, 20 years, you, you, you tell them just one or two stories, but they should be lurid. That will, that will um, uh, say, this happened between these two people who were profoundly in love, best friendship they ever had, and now they hate each other. <laughs> and their LLC, by the way, which had a promising future, was blasted to smithereens. So what the, the thing we have to do most of all with our two equal member LLC is address this issue. Guys, are you on board? And hopefully they'll say, yes, sir. You know, it's it's fascinating to hear you talk like that. I've heard many lawyers say that whether it's, again, whether it's an LLC, a partnership, or an S-Corp, you know, 50-50, that sometimes not having provisions in the agreement that deal with deadlock in some way forces the two business co-owners to cohabitate. It forces them to get along, forces them to come to a consensus because the because the option of not coming to the consensus is too ugly. And, and that if you put provisions in there that can lead to an exit or contemplate a, a breakup, that that somehow incentivizes those types of things in the first place. Do you have any thoughts about that? I have a couple of thoughts. First of all, that may happen from time to time, but I've dealt with hundreds and hundreds of LLCs like like the two, the kind we're talking about right now in the past 20 years, and I've never seen that happen. And I think lawyers who take that approach uh, to two-member LLCs should be expelled from the United States. <laughs> <laughs> and, I know, and I know just the man to do it. All right. You folks, uh, it's a pretty harsh... Uh assessment but i guess that's that's part of your new hampshire um attitude yes yes so let's talk about you know the sort of get into a little substance here how in general you know should you address deadlocks with clients forming you know multiple member llc's with two equal members the first thing you should do once they realize the reality of how destructive these common and destructive these disputes can be is is to uh, to draft really good dispute resolution provisions. And I think for many LLCs, the, as you may know, the forms in my book provide this. It's uh, you've got to uh, use your best efforts to negotiate a voluntary resolution. If that doesn't work, you've got mandatory mediation where you, you sort of hire a go-between. 
but you yourselves decide the issue. And then if mediation fails, you've got an arbitration provision, or it could be a litigation provision. And most litigators, you may be in this camp, aren't great believers in arbitration. I tend to be a believer because they're, uh, they're often uh, quicker and more informal and private than litigation. But Peter, you may want to say a quick word at this point as a as a consummate uh, litigator about arbitration versus litigation as a means to resolve disputes between two equal members of an LLC. Well, before I even get to that, as, as in a dispute resolution mechanism, if the objective is to allow the two members who may have a difference of opinion, even a serious difference of opinion on a, on a business issue, if the idea is to find a way that gets over that hump and allows them to continue the business in a collaborative, amicable fashion, then I my instinct is to say we're not talking about arbitration because in my experience, whether it's arbitration or litigation, once you get to that point, the attitudes have hardened. We're now talking about people hiring litigators like me to advocate their cause in what has all the appearances of a zero-sum game. I win, you lose. You lose, I win. So for me, if we're looking to figure a way past, you know, get over a, a hurdle that has occurred, you know, I think in terms of perhaps mediation, although an agreement that would even perhaps name the, the company accountant or someone who can be the honest broker to help them resolve the issue, or appointing a deadlock-breaking third director or you know third manager. Those are the types of things that I think can lead to the resolution and survival of the business relationship as opposed to you know, arbitration or litigation. You know, as between arbitration and litigation, to answer your specific question, John, I think my attitude over the years has become less enamored of arbitration as the arbitration process has come to more and more resemble litigation with more allowance for pre-hearing discovery, even motion practice, find that the arbitration process has, as I said, become more and more like litigation and that the savings that used to be associated with arbitration are not as profound as they used to be. I still think the major advantage of arbitration, though, over litigation is that it's a private affair and you're not, you know, there's no uh, dirty laundry that's being publicly aired, which can be horrendous for a business. Um, I must say, I can't disagree with anything that you've just said. And I do think that the very prospect of going to litigation, if you teach people how painful litigation often is, will impel them to try harder to arrive at a at a voluntary a solution of the dispute between them, no matter how serious it is. But I do think that you want to have a very clear, uh, reasonably comprehensive uh, dispute resolution provisions, be- because if both the people have agreed to that, and it's going to be an arbitrator, and the arbitrator says A wins, B loses, you've agreed on day one when you signed the agreement that yes, arbitration decides it. So. So, uh, so, so I do think there's a real value in that. But I also think your point is excellent. That okay, but but hopefully you never get there. Hopefully you've got provisions written into your operating agreement that resolve the serious dispute between the two equal members without getting to arbitration or litigation. So the, the question I think becomes, what might they be? And I think your idea of a um, 
uh, a third director is a, a good idea. But by the way, uh, as you know, I've given you a kind of outline of the questions that I thought were key on this um, whole issue of the deadlocks we're talking about. And I understand you may want to uh, put that in your blog. But that idea is one that should be in my outline that's not. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. But what else can you put in apart from dispute resolution provisions that might help you to resolve these um, deadlocks that we're talking about? And I, I assume that's a rhetorical question, which you're about to answer. Indeed, it is. And w- one very common and I think very powerful way of resolving it, if you have an irreconcilable difference, is what they call a Texas shootout provision. My guess is that many of your listeners already know what that is. But for those who don't, the way a Texas shootout provision are, works is this. The members one of the members or maybe both of the members decide they have an irreconcilable difference and one of them uh, proposes to the other listen i want to buy you out on x price terms and on whatever uh, non-price terms and when that offer is made the other member in this dispute either has to sell his membership to the offeror or has to buy out the offeror uh, himself on the same terms. And so there's a great incentive in a Texas shootout arrangement that the uh, the first member who offers the original terms will make uh, as sure as he can that these terms are fair because he may have to sell instead of buying. And the reason they call it a Texas shootout provision is that when the dust settles from the implementation of this uh, contractual arrangement, only one member is left. So that's, uh, 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 in my experience, a very powerful way of providing for a resolution short of arbitration or litigation. Am I putting that fairly clearly? And does does that make sense to you? It does. It does. And um, I'm just curious whether you, in your practice, are successful, if that's the right word, in including a Texas shootout provision in a substantial number of LLC operating agreements? I I can't give you a, a percentage, but I'd say in many of my agreements, yes. If you were to look, and this would be uh, an excruciatingly boring and unpleasant experience, at, say, the last 50 operating agreements I've done for two-member LLCs, I bet you'd find that a third to a half have agreed to Texas shootout provisions. I mean, I've seen on my end of things, I've seen many agreements that have either a Texas shootout or some other form of buy-sell agreement. And very, very often, if not in most of the cases that I deal with, and remember, I may not be dealing with a representative sample, the, the, the provisions are not exercised. They're not invoked by one side or the other because of some divergence in either their financial conditions of the two partners or there may be other reasons. For instance, in many operating companies with two partners or two LLC members, I should say, you know, one may be the face of the company who has the relationships with the company's customers and vendors, and the other may be more of the back office or financial manager. And when the relationship deteriorates and they're going off now in different directions, the one who controls the customers and essentially can walk off with the goodwill of the company, the value to the company to that person can be very different than the value of the company to the other person. So they're not really on 
equal or, or level ground when one or the other one is now being asked or expected to pull the trigger on, on the shootout provision. Does that something that you have to think about when you're putting together these agreements? Uh, yeah, I, these are excellent points. And uh, just to mention, to repeat very quickly, if one member has a bunch of money and the other doesn't, the Texas shootout provision may be grossly unfair. I ran into that just a short time ago with a, a very interesting startup where one guy had gobs of money and the other guy um, didn't. But the other guy did have the intellectual property and could continue creating the intellectual property. Some, so somehow they must have decided between themselves, they were very reflective and careful uh, clients, that in fact the IP productivity versus the money came out equal. Mm -hmm. But you got to make sure of that. And if, if there isn't that type of arrangement, having the money may create a very unfair situation uh, when uh, the Texas shootout uh, is is invoked. So you make great points. You also, I would imagine, like with any buy-sell, you're going to have to put in some terms of payment that will allow the company to finance the buyout over a period of time, or at least I would think that's uh, a topic for discussion when you're putting together the agreement, yes? Well, of, of course, the, the company is not a buyer here. Uh, one or the other member are buyers, but, but you're quite right. You want to have not only price terms, but to the extent the parties can realistically agree in advance, non-price terms. When are we going to close? And mm -hmm. is this a lump sum up front or installments? And if it's installments, what, what's the interest and what's going to be the security and, and so forth? So uh, it's, uh, you don't just say, hey, I want to buy you out. It's, it's like a mini uh, agreement to buy a company. So, uh, again, I agree with you on that point. But maybe we should move on to a couple of other basic provisions in addition to the Texas shootout provision. Peter, what do you think? I think you're reading my mind. Go ahead. Okay. So uh, I, I ran into, this would have been not much more than a year ago, a, a solution which I have found myself using. I, you learn so much stuff from your clients about how to draft operating agreements. And these guys said that if they had an agreement that, that, that both of them would cooperate to sell the company, so maybe both of them would be out of the picture. And they did this partly because one was reaching retirement age, at the age when he wanted to retire and the other wasn't. And so it was important for him to, to cash out in a way he thought would be more lucrative if they sold to a third party. It's a, a, a very fine company with state-of-the-art machinery and so forth. It's a, it's a metal processing company. Uh, but it also, I think, can serve as a good way to resolve differences between the members. Let's The company is a good one. Let's sell it. We're both rich. We're not running the company anymore, but but uh, we've got money in our pocket. So, And maybe you'll get a lot more from a buyout where the buyer is a third party than if I have to buy you out or you have to buy me out something to think about. I'm not recommending it for every agreement, but it's food for thought. Yeah, and that's interesting. Um, I, I guess it, I'm thinking that if if one of the members, and it's hard to predict these things because you're talking about an event that may take place years after you've entered into the agreement, but you know, if you come to the if you have such a provision and one of the members is highly incentivized to sell the company as a going concern, but the other would like to continue in business and maybe if buy out the other at, a, at whatever the most advantageous price and on the most advantageous terms are, are they going to 
sort of interfere with the process because they don't they may not want a, a true market test because they want to obviously buy out their partner at the at the on the best terms um yeah and uh, what if we enter into this hey the two of us together will sell the company today and both are enthusiastic but five years from now when the when the this disagreement arises one does want to sell and the other doesn't it won't work these two guys i hate to say this but they've been great friends for 20 years and they trust each other that when they say they're both going to work hard to sell the company, uh, that they will both work hard to sell the company. But the very factor that you've just mentioned that they might not is a reason not to do this kind of arrangement. So now what happens if whether the, I mean, I guess some of these provisions could be designed as mandatory, but they they sound and feel more like uh, optional provisions to invoke. So let's say they're not invoked, what happens then? You, you, the, you know, the, the provisions in the agreements are not solving the divergence of interest between the two members. What's left? Well, there's another possibility, which I think is interesting. And, and um, it happens to be in, pardon this citation, RSA 304-C-109. Parens D of the of the um, New Hampshire LLC Act, but you can find it in also the New Jersey Act, also the Florida Act, and for all I know, many other acts. It's an incompatibility provision because so often people start out thinking it's going to be great to work together. Neither of them embezzles. Each of them works fairly hard, but they just can't work with each other. Again, it's human nature. It's like marriage between a man and a woman. You enter in with the best hopes and you, you, you just are incompatible. And what 109 of the New Hampshire Act says in that situation is that either member or any member, when it's three or more members, can go to a judge and say, hey, Your Honor, we're incompatible. This is the resolution I would want. And then 109D of our New Hampshire Act and, I, and the Florida and New Jersey Act give the judge tremendous equitable scope to decide how to deal with this incompatibility provision. And the person who petitions for a, a remedy that will favor him or her with the incompatibility uh, may be disappointed because the judge says the other guy really deserves to retain this company. You're out of here. So it's a little bit dangerous. But I'll tell you, for what we had a, I chaired the committee of about nine New Hampshire lawyers, all of them very experienced in LLC uh, practice, that drafted this Section 109. And all of them loved this concept of somehow dealing statutorily with, uh, with a member incompatibility that arises over time. And I'm sure the reason was that they had seen it happen so often in practice. And so what you do in your operating agreement is you draft a contractual version of 109D that addresses the possibility of incompatibility. What do you think about that? Well, it sounds very much like a, a no-fault divorce. <laughs> well, what? yes. So yeah. I'm not sure I understand how you convert it into a contractual provision. I, I understand that the statute provides an an in, in, in entryway to into court to ask a judge to declare a divorce and decide who, if anyone's going to buy out whom, or maybe they're going to put the company on the on the auction block. But how, contractually, what does that look like? 
I guess the way it looks is uh, it says, uh, let's say that you don't have something like it, this in your statute. In New Hampshire, it's easy because you say if the partners uh, have a disagreement, they will go the 109D route. M- meaning, uh, meaning if there's, if it, there's a trigger, you define a trigger event, which then... What? Uh, uh, well, the trigger I'll, event. The trigger event is I just can't work with you anymore. I'm sorry. You're an okay guy, but I cannot work with you. We've got to do something about this, and uh, and and that's when you turn to 109. I guess what you do is basically you'd mirror 109D in your operating agreement, but but the the big difference might be that um, instead of having to go to court if that's something that you don't want to do because of the privacy factor that you've mentioned or whatever, it's going to be an arbitrator. And maybe you even agree, again, I'm harking back to what you said several minutes ago, on our accountant who we both have a deep trust in. But the point is, this is not something where I think we should hire Joe Blow as our CEO and the other guy says, I hate Joe Blow, and so it turns out as a terrible um, disagreement. It's rather something more human. It's incompatibility, like you say, a, a divorce um, situation. But but I guess what we're really saying is you want all the alternatives that you can think of as ways of dealing with deadlock so that you can put these before your two equal member LLC and instinctively they're going to like some and not others. Mm. But maybe you put this before them. Yeah, no, I understand. John, let me ask you a final question. The, the members of an LLC with two equal members, they can't resolve their dispute under the operating agreement, but they, they inform you that they feel that it has to be resolved in court. What advice do you normally provide in this situation? And be careful, John, because you're talking about my livelihood. <laughs> okay. I'm really afraid to proceed, but I'll I'll do so anyway. I have found that that, that uh, I, I thank God I've never been personally involved in a lawsuit. But when I've seen clients of mine involved in lawsuits, whether they were confident that they were going to win or they were afraid that they were going to lose, it was nevertheless an agonizing experience for them, in part because of the sheer uncertainty of litigation. Who knows what contract might turn up from 15 years ago that completely does a 180 on where we thought this thing was going to come out. And it foments, maybe if you're a little bit distant with the guy on the other side, the, the more the litigation goes on, the more you loathe him. And so it, it's, it's such, so for so many people, it's such a profoundly emotionally um, difficult situation, and it can be a, a, a very financially painful. And then in a lot of irreconcilable cases between two members, the, the solution will be an, a court-ordered dissolution, which could, in very many cases, mean a fire sale, in which uh, so much of the growing goodwill of the company is not paid for, and it's basically, hey, these are our assets other than goodwill, what do you give us for them? It's a, it's a judicially ordered dissolution. So, so what I'm really saying is, you say you guys absolutely can't resolve this. Let me tell you a little about what litigation is like. No, no matter how fine and fair and decent the litigators are, like you, Peter, it's going to be probably an awful experience. Can't you sit down one more time to avoid litigation? That's that's reading them the riot act, and I, I couldn't agree with you more, John. And, and, and I actually give the same kind of advice because I, I also know how horrific the litigation can be. 
And, you know, if you have a viable company and if the two co-owners just can't get along anymore, there has to be a better solution than litigation. And usually it's in the form of a buyout. Uh, John, this has been great talking with you about this. Uh, I really, I've known you for a number of years. And in my mind, you're sort of the model of the lawyer who pays extraordinary attention to putting together of good agreements that can anticipate not everything, because no agreement can anticipate everything, but thoughtful agreements that can anticipate most of the problems that are likely to occur over the life cycle of a business. And you, you are really doing a, a, a real, as we say here in New York, mitzvah for, for business owners. I don't think you use that word in New Hampshire much. but um, I do. And uh, I it's a pleasure to talk with you, and I'm going to encourage all of my listeners to, whom I've already told about your many um, blog sites and your books, to to pay careful attention to your advice because it's all good advice. John, thank you again for being part of the Business Divorce Roundtable. You're very welcome. That was John Cunningham talking about avoiding deadlock and LLC operating agreements. Please be sure to visit my New York Business Divorce blog. That's nybusinessdivorce.com, where you'll find my post on this interview with a link to John's how-to memo on dealing with deadlocks and operating agreements of two-member LLCs. For more information about LLC formation, check out John's blog, CunninghamOnOperatingAgreements.com. And of course, there's his form book and practice manual, Drafting Limited Liability Company Operating Agreements, published by Walters Kluwer. In the next episode of Business Divorce Roundtable, I'll be talking with Kurt Heyman and Pete Laddig, two top Delaware Chancery Court litigators on what I'm calling Business Divorce Delaware Style. Until then, this is Peter Mahler thanking you for listening to the podcast. Please consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast manager. Write a review if you like it. Don't write a review if you don't like it. Or otherwise, feel free to drop me a line and let me know what you think about the podcast. 